Why don't we stop and ask for directions? Every husband has heard that question posed from the passenger seat, right? Why don't we just stop and ask for directions? But there's something about men, they just think they can figure it out. That they're never really lost. They can determine where they are and get to where they need to be. And that self-dependence when it comes to directions has gotten men very, very lost. Right? But guess what? It's not only men that struggle with self-dependence. Everyone in this room struggles with taking life into our own hands and trying to figure it out in our own wisdom and trying to live it out in our own strength. And self-dependence never really works out too well, does it? I want to talk to you this morning about the sin of self-dependence. And it is so clearly pictured and illustrated in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So turn there with me, 1 Samuel chapter 13, as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. We'll begin reading in verse 1, 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. 1 Samuel 13, verse 1, the Bible says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now, your translation of the Bible may have something different in those two verses. The, the reality is that in the original Hebrew, the numbers aren't there. We don't know why the numbers aren't there. They weren't included in the original text. And so scholars are trying to get to their best estimate of what these numbers are. And the way they get here is they look at Acts chapter 13, which mentions Saul reigning for 40 years. They look at some of the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus, where he said the same thing. And they put all that together and, and try to uh, include the numbers here. And so in New American Standard says Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 42 years over Israel. Now look in verse 2. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and, and like people and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance and they came up and camped in Michmash east of Beth Aven. Now Fast forward to verse 8. Now he, Saul, waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you 
done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I like that. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly you have not kept the commandment of the lord your god which he commanded you for now the lord would have established your kingdom over israel forever but now your kingdom shall not endure the lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart and the lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the lord commanded you let's pray together father we are needy people We need your help to be able to understand this text and apply this text and obey this text. So would you move by your spirit in our midst? Would you touch our hearts and change our lives for the glory of your great name? As we sang earlier, Lord, would you let your word move with power? With power. And we'll thank you for that grace. Lord, establish my steps in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Saul was named the first king of Israel by God. And things started out really, really well. Saul uh, led the people to a great victory over the Ammonites. But after that victory, Samuel, the prophet, gets everyone together to teach him some important things. He gathered the people of Israel in chapter 12 to point out that their demand for a king was a sin. Instead of God being their ultimate authority, instead of them living as a theocracy, they wanted an earthly ruler to rally behind. They wanted an earthly king to follow. And Samuel's pointing out in chapter 12, this was a sin. This was not the right thing for you to ask for an earthly king. But... We see in chapter 12 that God showed them grace by giving them a fresh start. Okay, you messed up, you asked for a king you shouldn't have, and I gave you a king to teach you an important lesson. But from this point on, I'm going to give you an opportunity to fear me and to serve me. As a matter of fact, look in chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, verse 24. Look what Samuel says to the people of Israel. He says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider... What great things he has done for you. But, but, look what he says, if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So, hey, they shouldn't have asked for a king, but they did. God gave them a king. He says, hey, here's a fresh start. If you'll serve me, if you'll fear me, if you'll go in the right direction, things will go well with you. But if you continue to ignore my authority, if you continue to reject my authority, Things will go badly. You and your king will be swept away. So we see here that King Saul and the people could fear God and serve God. But if not, they could expect serious consequences. And here's the deal. Saul did not take Samuel's message to heart. He had a fresh start, a new opportunity to do the right thing, serve the Lord, obey the Lord, but he does not take the message to heart. As a matter of fact, The next three chapters feature three foolish decisions from Saul. In chapter 13, we see his decision to offer the burnt offering instead of waiting for Samuel. You might call this the sin 
of self-dependence. In chapter 14, which we'll get to shortly, we see Samuel making, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Saul making a rash, foolish vow. We would call this the sin of self-importance. And then in chapter 15, we see Saul directly disobeying an order from the Lord. And this is the sin of self-indulgence. And so 13, 14, 15, we see Saul's foolishness on display, some, some very unwise decisions that he makes. And hopefully we can learn from his foolishness so we don't go down that same path. And chapter 13 features the sin of Saul's self-dependence. What I want to do is I want to look at chapter 13 and, and, and pull some, some principles from the text. What I have for you this morning is this. I have an observation, a warning, an admonition, and a principle. All right, observation, a warning, admonition, and a principle that come from our text of Scripture this morning. So let's just walk through this passage together. First of all, I want you to see an observation. If you look there on your notes, an observation. Here's the observation. When you are squeezed, what's on the inside will come out. When you're squeezed by life, what's on the inside will come out. If I had a tube of toothpaste up here this morning, and I squeezed it, what would come out? Toothpaste. What's on the inside, right? And when life squeezes you, and by the way, life has a way of squeezing, doesn't it? When life squeezes you, what's really on the inside will be revealed. As a matter of fact, if you look there on your notes, crisis reveals character. Crisis reveals character. Now look back with me in chapter 13, verse 2. It says, now Saul chose for himself, now watch the numbers here, 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. So how many men did Saul have under his command? 3,000. Now, look at the next verse. It says, Jonathan, verse 3, smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And so... Jonathan picks a fight here, and what Jonathan does, Saul's son, is he stirs up a hornet's nest. Because look what happens next. It says, Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. He knew that when the Philistines heard that the Israelites had attacked them, they would come out in force for revenge. Verse 4, all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now look in verse 5. When the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots. Now, it would take at least one man to man a chariot, so we've got at least 30,000 men here. And then look what it says next. And 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand, which is on the seashore in abundance, that came up and camped in Michmash east of beth Aven. So how many men does Saul have under his command? 3,000. And he calls for more, but there's no indication that more come. How many troops do the Philistines bring to the fight? 36,000, probably 36,000 plus. That's not a fair fight. 3,000 plus uh, versus 36,000. So the situation is dire. It's looking, it's looking tough. And look what happens in verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, they knew they were outnumbered. Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits 
Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following followed him, trembling. So you see the you see the crisis. Thirty six thousand plus Philistines, three thousand Israelites under Saul's command, and a lot of them are running. They're hiding. They're crossing the Jordan, going back home, and the rest of the people that were there with Saul were trembling before the might of the Philistine army. This is a crisis and this crisis this squeezing of Paul of Saul's leadership reveals his character it reveals that Saul at his core was a self-dependent king because look what happens in verse 8 now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel but Samuel did not come to Gilgal And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? Saul's decision to offer the burnt offering on his own was a sin. It was the wrong thing to do. And there are two factors involved in Saul's sin. Number one, you look there in your notes. He took on the role of priest and offered a sacrifice. He had no mediator between him and God. He was the king, but he still needed a mediator. He still needed a priest, which which foreshadowed the need that we all have for a mediator. We all need someone to come between us and God and make us acceptable to God, and that one is Jesus, right? Even though Saul was the king, he still needed a mediator, but he ignored that, and he offers the burnt offering on his own and it was a sin but here's the second factor involved in his sin in display of of self-dependence he did not wait for instruction from the lord now here's how it was supposed to go with saul being king he was the king samuel was the prophet who spoke on behalf of god and saul was supposed to wait for samuel to tell him on behalf of the lord what he was supposed to do back up with me to Chapter, um, chapter 10, verse 8. I want to show you how this was the, the procedure that Saul was supposed to operate under. Chapter 10, verse 8. When he's first anointed king, Samuel says to Saul, And you shall go before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. See the procedure there? Saul, you're the king, but you still need God's instruction. So you wait for me to come. I'll offer the peace offering. I'll offer the burnt offering, and then I'll tell you what to do. Look in chapter 12, verse 23. Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Saul, you're the king, but I'm the prophet. And I will speak as God's mouthpiece and instruct you in the way you ought to go. That was the procedure that Saul was supposed to follow. But here in chapter 13, Saul does not follow that procedure. Instead of waiting for Samuel to come and offer the burnt offering, and for Samuel to come and give him instruction, Saul, in a moment of crisis being squeezed, takes matters into his own hands. And he's modeling here self-dependence. 
I read this quote from Philip Nation on Twitter this past week. He wrote, leadership is the choice to do what is right and best when faced with the opportunity to do what is expedient and easy. And in a moment of crisis, instead of him doing what was right and best, he does what's expedient. And he takes matters into his own hands. And Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done? So here's the observation from this text. When you are squeezed by life, and you will be, your character will be revealed. What's on the inside will come out. That's one reason I really appreciate my parents so much growing up. They modeled for me how to handle crisis. I remember my house burning down when I was in seventh grade and, and my mother going through cancer. We lost her last year to cancer. And, and, and I've, seen my parents, I've seen my parents walk through crises. And I've seen them in the moment of crisis turn to the Lord. And that made a major mark on my life growing up. That when I saw them go through difficulty, when I saw them squeezed, I saw character. And that marked me as a, a child growing up in their home. And when we are squeezed, we want, to, we want to show character, right? Character that trusts God. Character that depends upon the Lord. Not trying to take life into our own hands and manipulate things and, and try to handle it on our own. So there's an observation here. When you're squeezed, what's on the inside will come out. But there's a second reality I want you to see. I want you to see a warning in this text. When you want to do life on your own, God will let you. Now that, that phrase is chilling, is it not? When you want to do life on your own, when you want to take matters into your own hands and live in self-dependence, God will let you. He'll let you. Now look what happens here in the text. There were serious consequences for Saul's sin. Samuel comes to Saul after he had offered the burnt offering and says, what have you done? And look what Saul says. He says, well, I saw the people were scattering. I had to do something, so I went ahead and offered the offering. Now look in, look in verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So here's what happens. Here's the consequence for him taking matters into his own hands. The kingdom was taken away from him and his family and would be given to someone else. Not only would, was the kingdom taken away from Saul, but the kingdom was taken away from his descendants. Now, we're going to see in chapter 14 that Jonathan was a courageous dude. His son, Jonathan would have made a great king. He was a courageous warrior. We'll see him interacting with David later on. He was a great, faithful friend. He would have been a great king. But he never had the opportunity to be king because of the foolish decision of his dad. The kingdom was taken away from his family and would be given to someone else. But also notice the consequence of Saul's self-dependence. Saul was left to deal with the crisis on his own. Look what the Bible says in verse 15. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. You know what happens? Samuel had come 
to offer the burnt offering, the peace offering, to give him instruction. But when Samuel saw that, that Saul had taken matters into his own hand, you know what Samuel does? He leaves. See that? He says, hey, the kingdom's no longer going to be yours. It's going to be taken from you, given to another person after God's own heart. And then Samuel leaves. Notice there's no instruction here. He doesn't tell Saul what he ought to do. He leaves him to face this crisis in his own strength and wisdom. And what do we learn from that? We learn that when you want to do life on your own, God will let you. He'll let you. And it never turns out real, real good. As a matter of fact, without God's guidance, the Israelites were outsmarted and overpowered by the Philistines. Look what happens as Saul deals with this crisis in his own wisdom and strength. Verse 16, now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash and the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, the, uh, the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. Another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And so if you remember when Saul led the people to overthrow the Ammonites, he used this strategy of dividing his army into three different groups. Now the tables are turned. The Philistines do the same thing. They divide their vast army into three raiding parties, and they go throughout the land just overthrowing towns, pillaging towns, controlling the territory of Israel, oppressing the people of Israel. And it gets even worse. Look in verse 19. Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes to fix the hose. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The crisis goes from bad to worse. The Philistines divide up and just start conquering the different territories throughout Israel, and because they're in control... They don't allow them to have a blacksmith so they can fashion weapons. And they, if they want to have their farming implements sharpened, they have to go to the Philistines and pay them. I mean, the Philistines are in complete control of Israel, oppressing them with a heavy hand. Without God's guidance, the Israelites were outsmarted and outpowered, overpowered by the Philistines. How do we get here? Earlier in 1 Samuel, Saul leads the people to a great victory over the Ammonites. People are rejoicing. God had given them a wonderful victory. Victorious. And then over here, they're oppressed and held down by the Philistines. How do we get here? We got here by Saul's self-dependence. He tried to take matters into his own hands, and he did not have the strength and the wisdom that he needed to deal with this issue in the right way. And so it's a chilling prospect, a biblical reality. When you try to take matters into your own hands, when you try to live your life without the Lord, He will let you. And I promise you, it won't go well. That's why Jesus said over in John 15, 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we've seen a, an observation, and we've seen a warning. But third, I want you to see an admonition. And here's the admonition that we need to glean from this text. When you sin, when God shows you you've blown it, you need to own it, not make excuses. 
I want you to see how Saul responds in chapter 13 to, to his sin. Verse uh, 11, after Saul had offered the burnt offering, Samuel comes onto the scene, and Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. Now I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself, I love that, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You know what Saul's doing here? He's making excuses. When confronted with his foolish decision, Saul resorted to excuse making. He blamed the people. They're scattering. He blamed Samuel. You're late. He blamed the Philistines. They're tough. And it's all their fault. If, if this wasn't happening, I wouldn't have done that very unwise, foolish, self-dependent thing. So he's shifting the blame from his own responsibility to blaming others. He did not take personal responsibility. We see this all throughout the Bible, don't we? Who does Eve blame for her sin in the Garden of Eden? She blames the serpent. Who does Adam blame? He blames Eve. Over in the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up on the mountain to spend time with the, the God that delivered them from Egypt, the people get restless at the bottom of the mountain. They say, we want to, we want to worship something we can see. So, Aaron, will you, Moses' brother, will you make for us a, a, a golden calf that we can worship? And so Aaron collects all the gold they had received from Egypt, and he, he fashions a golden calf, and people begin to worship that idol and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And Moses comes down the mountain and says, what are you doing? I've been up on the mountain talking with the one true God, and here you are fashioning a golden calf. And Aaron says, it's, 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 it's comical to see. Aaron says, well, listen, the people were pressuring me, and I, and I put the gold in the fire, and out came this calf. So what he says, it just, it just magically took the form of a calf. Shifting blame, shifting responsibility. And when you are confronted with your sin, when you're confronted with your self-dependence, don't shift blame. Don't make excuses. Deal with it. Take, take ownership and say, I, okay, I've blown it. I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm no longer going down the road of self-dependence. I'm going in a new direction. I'm going to depend and, uh, on and trust the Lord. Benjamin Franklin said, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses that was good at anything else. <laughs> Warren Wearsby writes, Adam made the first excuse for sin, and many have followed his bad example. Excuses only make matters worse. And as Saul makes these excuses, things don't get better, they get worse, don't they? So what do you do, Wade? You deal with your sin honestly and directly to find healing. Deal with your sin honestly and directly to find healing. Making excuses doesn't help anybody, yourself included. And so we see here an admonition. When you sin, you need to own it. Not make excuses. But let me give you a principle to close out our time together. A principle. We've seen in this text an observation, a warning, an admonition, but forth a principle. Here's the principle I want you to, 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 to glean from 1 Samuel 13. I want you to leave thinking about this principle. You ready? Our lives are effective and God-honoring when we depend upon Him. Our lives are effective and God-honoring when we depend upon Him. Question. Do you want your life to count? Do you want your life to matter? Do you want your life to have impact? Do you? That's only going to happen if you live in complete 
and total dependence upon the Lord. This is a big deal. If you live in self-dependence, your life is not going to count for the kingdom. But if you live in dependence, your life will. So we need to learn how to depend upon God. And I want to give you some, some thoughts there. How do you depend upon God? This is application. This is practical things, all right? First of all, you depend upon God by trusting Christ alone for salvation. The first area in which you have to depend upon God is in the, is in the area of your salvation. See, there are a lot of people that are trying to work their way to heaven. They think if they do the right stuff, if they check the right boxes, if they're part of the right denomination, or if their church is on a membership roll, if they're kind to their neighbor, they're doing the right things, then God will accept them and God will bring them to heaven when it's all said and done. And that is works-based salvation. That's trying to work your way to God. Here's the problem with that. No matter how many good things you do, you've still got sin in your life that must be forgiven. For you to have a relationship with God, for you to go to heaven when you die. And the only way you can have your sin forgiven is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You see, Jesus died on the cross to, to pay the penalty that your sin deserves. And Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive today. And he's the only one that can deal with your sin problem and wash that sin away so that you can know God, so that you can call God Father, so that you can go to heaven when you die. You cannot work your way to heaven. You've got to deal with your sin issue. And Jesus is the only way to deal with your sin issue. And by the way, you know what the Bible says about our righteous attempts to make ourselves acceptable to him? Isaiah says that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Your best five minutes on planet Earth don't even come close to the glory and holiness of God. In other words, if you and I are going to be saved, we've got to have some help, right? We've got to stop depending upon ourselves to save ourselves. We've got to depend upon Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. So step number one for you today is, if you're not saved, that you begin a life of total dependence by depending upon Jesus to save you. That's number one. Number two, you say, wait, well, I'm, I know that I'm, I'm saved, that eternal question has been answered, but how do I depend upon God as a believer in Christ? Well, look there in your notes. You depend upon God by saturating yourself with Scripture. Turn to Psalm 119 with me. I'm going to read you just a portion of this psalm. Psalm 119, verse 9. The psalmist here writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Now here's the implication. If a young man keeps his way pure by keeping it according to the word, then if he doesn't keep it according to the word, his way's not going to be pure. Everybody see that? So you need God's word to, to live a godly life. Keep reading. With all my heart I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I rejoice in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and 
regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Notice here, the psalmist understands how much he needs the word of God. If I'm going to live a pure life, if I'm going to live in such a way that I do not sin against you, I've got to have your word. So I'm going to treasure it, rejoice in it, meditate upon it, speak of it. I'm going to saturate myself with your word. And when you ignore God's word, when you are just haphazard about God's word in your Christian journey, you know what you're saying to God? You're saying to God, hey God, I've got this. I can do life on my own. I don't need the guidance, instruction, the way I, 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 I've got what it takes to live life in the way I need to live life. I don't need what you have to say. That's what you're saying to God when you don't take the Bible seriously. And so we need to, to saturate ourselves with, with Bible, saturate ourselves with Scripture, make sure that we dig into the Word and, and get into the Word so the Word gets into us so that the Word becomes a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We depend upon God by saturating ourselves with Scripture. Third, we depend upon God by praying consistently and fervently. Psalm 141 Look at the words of David. Verse 1, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. Notice here the fervency of David's prayer. God, I need you. I'm calling out to you. Help! Help! And that's what prayer is all about. You've heard me say this statement before, probably, but I think it's a very important statement. Prayerlessness is the ultimate expression of self-dependence. When you don't pray, when you don't call upon God asking for his help, you are saying to God, I am going to do life on my own without you. Prayerlessness is the ultimate expression of self-dependence. But the flip side is also true. Prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence. So if we're going to depend upon God, we've got, to, we've got to show that by prayer, calling on his name. Life is not easy, right? To fulfill the callings God has on your life, to be a, a godly husband or wife, a godly mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, to be a faithful friend, a godly co-worker. A godly student, when you're surrounded by ungodliness. It's not easy to live for the Lord in the midst of a decaying culture. And we cannot be who we need to be without the Lord's help. So we should be a people that are crying out to God consistently and fervently, God, help! I need your help to be the husband, the pastor, the dad you've called me to be. Help! When was the last time you cried out to God and said, Lord, without you, I am sunk. Help! When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? Prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence. But let me give you one further truth. We depend upon God by participating in true community. Let me tell you what you will not find in the Bible. You will not find in the Bible the concept of 
the Lone Ranger. Called to live out your Christian life on your own. God gives us this wonderful gift called the body of Christ. And the role of the body of Christ is found in Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, uh, we need to spur one another on, encourage, exhort, spur one another on to love and to good works, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. In other words, if we're going to encourage one another to live for Jesus, do the right thing, we've got to be around each other, right? We need that. We need that community, that encouragement, that accountability to live the Christian life, to go in the right direction. And you realize just how needy you are, you should run to other believers and say, I need to be around some Christians that are going to point me in the right direction and help me as I seek to make a difference in this world. We, we depend upon God by participating in true community. By the way, that's why we talk so much about connect groups around here, about getting in a small group. Because we know that that's what you need. That's what I need. We need to be around believers that, that know us. It can help us and encourage us to do the right thing for the glory of God. We depend upon God by participating in true community. So we see here in, Hebrew, in 1 Samuel 13 the, the sin of self-dependence. And, and, and it's like a clarion call from the Bible. We need to depend upon God. Now here's what's interesting. I'm going to close with this. In chapters 13, 14, and 15, with every foolish move of Saul, there's a contrast offered. You see Saul doing something foolish, but there's a contrast of, of, of someone doing something good and right. Here in chapter 13, the contrast is between Saul, a king of self-dependence, and a new king that God would name, who was a man after God's own heart. The implication is this, Saul was not a man after God's own heart. This new king, who will be introduced to us in chapter 16, is a man after God's own heart. And here's what you and I learn from that. We will never be people after God's own heart without dependence. We'll never be people after God's own heart without dependence. We see this new king that's named by God, the one that God sought out, we're going to see remarkable dependence upon the Lord. He fights lions and bears and giants dependent upon the Lord. So here's the question. Are you a person after God's own heart, a man, a woman after God's own heart, dependent upon Him, or are you trying to handle life on your own? Deal with life, manipulate life in your own strength and wisdom. Let's learn from Saul and not go down that road of self-dependence. We need the Lord.